I've got one assignment today and one kind of big idea that I want to kind of work on, and that is this. It's, this, it's the power of perspective. That your perspective, your paradigm, how you see things actually dictates, it's act, the actual framework by which you live your life. That right now you have a set of assumptions, a set of ideas, a set of beliefs that you are currently operating by. Whether you think about it or not, you have some framework that you are kind of navigating your existence and everything that comes at you, all the life, all the life, all the stuff of life, you are filtering it currently, I am too, through a paradigm, through a a perspective. And that perspective dictates how you live and what you expect, how you feel, the decisions you make, the things you value, the things you don't value. Your framework, your perspective, your paradigm is the major factor in the life you are currently living. Perspective is everything. You, you probably know the power of perspective even just in life, how you've lived long enough to see how some things can change. And you thought one way about something and then, aha, you saw something different. And what does it do? It changes how you operate. Even on a physical level, anybody ever had that experience where you went to the optometrist and the optometrist is giving you new lenses and you, anybody remember the first time you got glasses and you left and all of a sudden like the world is in HD right? And you're, you're, you're seeing things you didn't see before, like signs and speed limits and stuff like that, right? Like you, you're, you're now, you're able to see something you hadn't seen before. Perspective is everything. This week I was watching a TED Talk. Anybody ever watch TED Talks? I, I like some of them. Some of them are terrible, but anyway, uh, I was watching this one and it had this guy who was an ad man. He was a guy who, who, who focuses on uh, just marketing and brand and all that stuff. And this guy named Rory Sutherland, and he's actually a behavioral scientist. And he's somebody who specializes in how we, you know, how we operate and think and move, which is when you're trying to sell people stuff to know how they think. And he made this statement that I thought was so true that I was working off thinking about this stuff this week. And he said this, he said, things are not what they are. He said, things are what you think they are. Things are not what they are. Things are what you think they are. Meaning what? He's, he's not saying that all truth is relative. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you as a human being are incapable of operating outside of your thinking. So he said that, you know what, the way, the way we think about that in advertising is if I can get you to think a certain way, you're going to act a certain way. That the way you think sets up your actions, your inclinations, your sensitivities, your feelings, how you think dictates your whole life. A lot of the time we don't think about it that way, but that is an actual fact. And then if you think about it a little further, I think it's interesting this week, uh, the, the, great, the great or arguable, whatever you want to say, Stephen Hawking died this week. The atheist, the guy who's a, you know, cause astrophysicist and thought about stuff and all that, you know, and uh, he, he, he died this week and he died with a certain framework about ultimate existence that for him, there was no God. And so he filtered his life through that framework that there is no God and he made those decisions. And I want to suggest to you today that whatever your idea of ultimate reality is, and I know I'm getting too existential already at 930 in the morning, but hang with me. Whatever your idea of ultimate reality, ultimate authority, your idea of God, or maybe you're here and you don't have an idea of God, maybe you don't think there is a God, but whatever your idea of ultimate is, you are currently operating within that framework. So it's critically important that that framework is correct. Is it not? Like, I, I think it's, when I thought about Stephen Hawking's passing away, I, I said to my wife, I, I, hope, he, I hope he made his peace with God. 
Because if after you die, if you die with the assumption that nothing is after you, you know, that nothing happens after you take your last breath and then you awake to a whole new reality, all of a sudden, whether you like it or not, you're, you're there to deal with this new truth and this new reality that you thought wasn't a thing. It's crucial that when we think about God and what we think about God is accurate. And then secondarily, I would put it like this, that what you think about God will dictate a certain type of life. How you are living and how you think about God will set up the framework for how you live. So it's crucial that we think about God and how we think about God actually is the very thing that sets up how we live. How you interpret the things that are going on in your life is based on your idea of God. Maybe you don't think there is a God. Then, okay, well, I guess stuff happens, right? But some of you maybe have an idea of God that maybe God is this hard thing to figure out. And I'm trying to understand where I stand with him. This happened and it was bad, but I was being good. And I don't know why that good thing, bad things happen to good people. I know why bad things happen to bad people. And you're trying to navigate the world and reconcile this idea of God. Has anybody, anybody ever felt like that? Like I'm looking at my life and I'm trying to understand why things are the way they are through a certain lens and the Bible tries to help us understand why things are the way they are and, why, and who God is through a new framework. And that's what the whole book of Genesis is all about. Genesis is a paradigm book. Genesis is a framework book. Genesis is a, is a book about perspective on how and why things are the way they are. And more importantly, who God is. It, it tries to answer some of the questions to create a framework by which we can live our lives and find life, because that is the most important question. What, what comes into mind when you think about God? One of my favorite authors is this old preacher, kind of a cranky old preacher, but I like him. His name's A.W. Tozer, and he wrote this, and I want to read this statement, because this kind of gives a little more color as to what I'm trying to say, because he said it better. Look at this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So he's saying the same thing that the, that the behavioral scientist said, that what you think will dictate how you live and what you do. So your thinking matters. We tend by secret law of the soul. Here it is. We tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What's he saying? You're going to live based on your idea of who God is. Naturally. If you don't think there is a God, you are right now operating on that construct. Y'all looking at me like, dude, you are going deep today. Just hang with me because it's going gonna, it's gonna to get good in a minute. But just I need to set this up for you. He says this, that our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. What's he saying? He's saying... Whether you know it or not, right now, buried beneath all of the stuff of life, all of your current ideas of God and how you interact with him, that is religion, buried under there is some version of a deity, of an ultimate power, that you are currently working your life from that basis. That you have some concept of what God is like. 
and who he actually is that is ultimately, whether you know it or not, it could be buried under church and it could be buried under, I'm a good Christian. It could be buried under, I'm an atheist. It could be buried under a whole bunch of stuff. But deep down inside of you, there is a vision of God that is driving the life that you are currently living. And so it is absolutely crucial that when we think about God, we think about the God that God reveals in the Bible. And so we've been journeying through this book of Genesis for the last several weeks, and we've been looking specifically at this story of a man named Abraham. And Abraham becomes kind of the framework for the rest of the redemption story and leads all the way to Jesus. Jesus' story and Abraham's story are intimately connected. We're going to celebrate Easter here in a couple weeks. I'm really excited. But we've We've been looking week by week at the story of Abraham, and God has been revealing himself to Abraham story by story and season by season. And if you've been following along, you've been here each week, it's almost as though Abraham went from obscurity to having an experience where this God calls him out and reveals himself to Abraham. And it's like week by week, Abraham is sat down in front of this cosmic optometrist called God, and God has been flipping lenses on him so that he could see God clearly. And today we get to the most famous story about Abraham, the one that even if you probably didn't go to church, you might have heard about this story before. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. And in it, it reveals to us, one, how Abraham had come to think and see, think about and see God, but also it shows us a new framework by which God wanted to show Abraham something about himself. And I want to look at that today. And I want to just, if you're taking notes, we're going we're to go through and I want to show you three lenses that Abraham was envisioning God, that his idea of God kind of operated on these three lenses. You're going to see it in the story of Abraham and Isaac. So let's jump in. I want to read it. And I want to look at three lenses by which the Bible wants you to see God and understand him. And thus, when you see God this way, you'll see everything else through that lens. So are you with me? I know that was a deep dive for the first 10 minutes, but I had to set that framework because it's important that you learn how and that we, we see what the word is trying to get us to see. It's all about revelation, seeing what we couldn't before. Genesis 22, verse 1. If you have your Bible, open it up. Let's just read along. We're going to pull a few things out. We're not even going to veer out of there. Just stay right there in Genesis 22. It says this. uh, Sometime later, this is after Abraham and, uh, and Sarah gave birth to Isaac. We don't know how long it was, but it says this. That sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Now, let me ask you a question. Long sermon alert. He stopped six words in. Uh, Let me ask you a question. When God tests us, uh, who, for whose benefit is this test? Ours. Yeah, this test is not to reveal something to God that he did not previously know. I know when you read that, because at least I do, when I read that, I'm like, oh, was God trying to see if Abraham had faith? If God is omniscient, it means he knows absolutely everything. Like, like I always get a kick out of, in the New Testament, when Jesus asks a question. Is Jesus asking a question because he doesn't know said information? Or is he asking that question because he wants you to figure out something? You know, yeah, God knows everything. So it's important that you understand that this experience, this test, is actually that some, God, God is trying to reveal something to Abraham. That comes from the Hebrew word nasa, which actually means to uncover, to unbury, that, that God wants to expose and reveal something through this experience to Abraham that he was not previously seeing. So it says that this test happens and we start to see just the framework 
that Abraham had come to operate on. I think it's going to help you today as you think about your life and specifically you think about how to think about God. So sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, this is the words of God, take your son, your only son, yeah, that one. Take your son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Now, if that hits you hard and and makes you think weird thoughts about God and makes you wonder what on earth is he asking this for, hold that thought, because we're going to answer that later. But feel the weight of that request. It is a huge request. God is asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. And then it says this, and this is important, verse 3. Say it out loud. The next morning, there it is, the next morning, not, not two weeks later, not four weeks later, Abraham didn't go off and fast and pray and try to think about what God actually said. He immediately went and did what God asked. The next morning, Abraham got up, he saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire and for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. So God comes to Abraham and ask this preposterous request. Abraham, you remember that son that I promised you? Remember that son I promised that I was going to bless the whole world through? I told you you're going to be a great father of many nations. And over the last few stories in the Bible, you know, we've seen Abraham try to learn how to trust God, even when it seems like nothing's happening. I mean, Abraham and Sarah were both like over 100. That's not exactly baby-making zone. And uh, they learned how to trust God even in that. And God did provide this amazing promised child. And you know what? I have some friends that, you know, uh, not that we don't all love our kids, but I, I notice a level of ferocity for parents who go through infertility and then have a child. They, they don't take it as for granted as some of us can. And can you imagine a hundred years of infertility and then finally you have a child and then God puts his finger down and says, I want him. Like, I, I can't imagine that request for any of my kids. But then you, you, you add in the complexity of the promise of God and, and how God had promised Abraham that I will bless you and, and I'm going to give you a promised child. It had to just blow the whole registry off of, out of his mind. Like, what on earth is happening here? But I want you to notice something. Before we unpack the, the nature of that request and before the story ends, I want you to notice something, though. What does Abraham do? He doesn't talk back. He doesn't open up and engage in dialogue, although he is one who had talked to God, if you read the Bible previously. Uh, he doesn't run and hide. He doesn't defy God. He doesn't say no. What's he do? He obeys immediately. What would cause a man to just blindly obey God? Fear. Like reverent fear. If you're taking notes and you want to know the lens by which Abraham was seeing God, the first thing you have to understand about Abraham and how he thought about God is this. He saw God through the lens of fear. In Abraham's mind, one thing you have to know about God that is non-negotiable, foundational, fundamental, base is this, that God is holy, that he's great, that Abraham had an idea of God that was not, Jesus is my homeboy, it wasn't some caricature of God up in the sky with a beard, like some of those 
those ideas and those memes, a lot of us, when we think about God, we have a caricature in mind. We have an internet meme. We have Velveeta cheese and, and floaty clouds and some crazy idea of God. But Abraham's fundamental idea of God, first and foremost, is this, that God is God. And that when he says something, you do it. Fear of God. He had this foundational, fundamental fear of God. Abraham knew when, if, this is, if this is God, then he is holy. Now, what does holy mean? Let me, let me unpack that for a second. When you think of holy, I know we've talked about this. If you've been around here, I try to help you understand. When you think of holy, don't, I think of stuffy when I think of holy. I think of like some dude with a robe shaking smoke around, going, hum na 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 ha right? Like that's what I think about when I think about holy. That's not what holy means according to the Bible. Holy means awe-inspiring grandeur. Holy is the word that the Bible uses because there is no language for God. You can't contextualize the magnitude, the magnificence, the enormity of who God is. And so the Bible scrapes at words and language claws at words. And so we just have this word for when there is no words and that's holy. God is holy. Maybe one of the best pictures in the Bible of the holiness of God and how that should kind of register to you is in this vision in Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah is his prophet and he had this vision of God and he said this, that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I had a vision of him. My, my eyes were open and I saw the Lord. And he said this, he was high and exalted. Like he was so magnificent so incredible. My, my reaction, first and foremost, is, wow, like, God is amazing. He is glorious in grandeur. Like, wow. Actually, maybe one of the best ways to describe the, what holy does to you. Have you ever, have you ever been um, maybe on a, on a cliff? Or maybe, has anybody ever been on a cruise? And you stand on the back edge of the boat, and you're out in the middle of the ocean and you just have this weird thought. Don't judge me because I know you've had it too. You have this weird thought like if I just hopped over, I'd totally die. Anybody? Don't judge me. You have, like you ever, you ever been on a cliff or on a high bridge and you just have this sudden whoosh of like, whoa, I'm small and that's big. Right? Anybody? You're seriously leaving me hanging here. Online crowd, you're all I got today. Yeah. That, that sudden rush of how small you are in comparison to how great that thing is. That's the feeling the Bible paints when it talks about the holiness of God. And anytime you see someone have a revelation of God, there is that rush of, oh my God, you are so great and magnificent and huge and large and powerful. And I am so small and unworthy and not, oh, this just isn't, we're not compatible. Like when Daniel had a vision of one like the Son of Man. Again, the, the Bible scrapes at language. When Daniel had a vision, what happened? It said that he fell down as though dead. Uh, when, when Peter had the revelation in the boat, when Jesus revealed himself to him, that who he really is, what did Peter say? Hey, cool, Jesus, you want to be my homeboy? That's not what he said. He said, I have to get away from you. You are too great for me to be around you. That whoosh of holy fear. Let me just suggest this to you today. If your idea of God and my idea of God does not at some fundamental level make you shudder a little bit, I suggest that your idea of God is too small and inaccurate 
And the Bible's constantly trying to pull your idea of God up. What do we do? We try to pull our idea of God down. And there's something in us that says, I want, I want to make God so I can know him and, and control him. But God will not be controlled. The Bible says God is a consuming fire. At one point it says, if you look on him, you can't look at him and live. That's why the Old Testament is so brutal. Like there are times where God says, don't touch that mountain, it's holy. If you touch that mountain or anything touches that mountain, it will die. And it does. Like this God is great. And so fundamentally, Abraham had a version of God in his mind that was so great and so massive and so magnificent that when God says it, I do it. Tozer goes on and he says this. I love this quote. And this just checks my heart so much when I think about this. It says, all of the problems of heaven and earth Though they were to confront us together at once. Think, think of all the problems that you're going through right now and the weight of it. You got bills, you got relationship stuff, you got kids stuff, you got, you got work stuff, you got health issues. All of those issues, think about all of them, compound them at once. And look what he says. All of these problems to confront us together at once would be nothing compared to the overwhelming problem of God. That he is what he is like, and what we as moral beings must do about him. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems, for he sees at once that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. But even if the multiple burdens of time may be lifted from him, the one mighty single burden of eternity begins to press down upon him with a weight more crushing than all the woes of the world piled one upon the other. That mighty burden is his obligation to God. Whew. It's <laughs> a dose of cold water, isn't it? But that's the God of the Bible. That's why Jesus one time, Jesus there... He was speaking and people were freaking out because Jesus was being threatened and Jesus' followers were being threatened. And Jesus said, hey, 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 don't fear people who can hurt, harm, or kill your body. That's temporary. Fear God who can destroy your soul. I know, I know this, is, this is heavy, but it's true. God is holy. And so we first and foremost, when we see God and we think about God, you first, you have to put the foundation of this, that he is holy, he is God, he is magnificent, he is mighty, he is omniscient, he knows everything, he is omnipotent, he is all-powerful, he is omnipresent, he is everywhere at once, there is nowhere you can go, you can't hide from him, you can't escape him, he is absolutely, utterly holy. And we have to recapture that vision of God. And you know what? Something amazing happens. It sounds intimidating, but you know what I've found in my life? When I allow God to be great in my mind, it has this amazing effect. When I put that lens on of making God great, all of a sudden those other things that seemed like giants in my life are meh. Just the lens that Abraham looked through, first and foremost, is that God is holy. He's had this lens of fear, but that's not where it stays. There is another lens, and I want you to see this. I would say this, that a person would do really well to put on a lens of fear of God. That's why it says in uh, Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it starts. Knowledge of the Holy One, knowledge of God's holiness is understanding. When I start building your framework in, first and foremost, fear God. God is great, 
But God wants to take you deeper than that. There's something better. There's something more beautiful. Let's keep going. I got 21 minutes. I'm going to use them all. Here we go. <laughs> Genesis 22, verse 4. So it says this. So, so Abraham immediately went. He heads out on this journey. Are you with me? It's going to, get, it's going to hit you in the feels here, I promise. So it's going to be good. It says on the third day. Everyone said on the third day. I heard that somewhere else. Third day. Keep that in mind. All right. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance on a mountain. There's some other story about a mountain. Uh, stay here with the donkey. There's some other story where somebody rode a donkey to, any, to a place. Anyway, Abraham told the servants, the boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there and then we will come back. Whoa, wait a minute. What's that say? We will worship there, and then we will come back. So now we're getting another window. It's the, this test is revealing, again, how Abraham sees things. In Abraham's mind, he sees God a certain way, and it's got him talking a certain way. He, he heard what God asked him, but he also had heard something else. And so now he says this, we will worship there, and we will come right back. Wow. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders. There's another story about a son carrying wood on his shoulders. Anyway, I can't quite grab it. Uh, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. For those of you who are new, I'm not trying to alienate you. If you're new to Christianity, it's about Jesus. We'll get there in a second. All right. He carried the boy, the fire, and the knife. And as the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, this is why I know the Bible's real, because it tells real stuff like this. He said, Father, yes, my son, uh, I see the fire and, I, and the wood, but uh, where's the sheep for the burnt offering? Isaac's putting stuff together. He's starting to figure this one out. Like, uh, wait a minute, there's one dad, one son, wood and fire, and we're going to do an offering. How is this going to work? So we don't know how old Isaac is. We just know he's old enough to figure that out. And so he's figuring it out. And look what Abraham says, and this reveals his, his second lens. Not just the fear of God that drives him to obedience, but he says this, God will provide. God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. You see, Abraham did not just have an idea of God, of the fear of God that, that kept him obedient, but he had a vision and a version and a lens for God about God's faithfulness that kept him confident. Second lens is this, if you're writing notes down. Abraham saw God through the lens of his faithfulness. In Abraham's mind, God is not only holy, he's faithful. Abraham had learned in his life, when God says he's going to do something, God will do it. And so Abraham knows to trust what God has already said. He's already learned that when God says it, it will happen. So why is Abraham not freaking out about the nature of this request? Because God had already spoken about what was going to happen with Isaac. And so Abraham knew that even if I have to go through this, I know because God said so, God will raise him up from the dead if that's what he has to do. I trust what God has said. Abraham had come to this place where he knew, yes, I fear God, but because I fear God and because God is holy, because he's different than me, I also have learned now that I can trust him. That I know when he says something, he won't go back on his word. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. The the Bible says that God does not change his mind. The Bible says that he doesn't cast a shifting shadow, that he is only always ever the same. So in Abraham's mind, you got to get this, he had a lens on that he was looking at his world through. He had an idea of God that said this, that even if I am going through the most hard to understand season of my life, I am filtering it not through how I feel, not through my confusion, not through what seems right. I am filtering it through one thing and one thing only, what God has already said. God's promise, God's word was the filter by which he was processing the craziness of this story. Don't we reverse it? Like when you think about your life, you think about, okay, hopefully, You've never had to try, had to sacrifice a child. That's, that's, let's hope that. But you've had your own issues, your own things going on. What do we do? We take the issue and we hold it up and we try to filter God through the issues that we have going on, try to make sense of it all, don't we? But Abraham does the opposite. He's filtering the stuff, the, the circumstance, the season through who God is. And so he knows there's a greater law at work than what I am going through, that God has already spoken about what's going to happen with my son. He promised, and so I'm standing on his promise. Abraham knew that when I hear God's word, I can trust it. That God's word will never fail. That's what lens he had on. And you and I, we, we have to put that on in our life. Like, I don't know what season you're going through, what you're, what you're trying to, to navigate through. I just know this, that when God says it, it will happen. If God promised it, it will come to pass, period. The Bible says it over and over and over. And that is the fight of life, the fight of faith. It is to believe, in spite of the evidence, to believe what God has already said. Even if they die. Even if the healing doesn't come yet. Even if I didn't get what I asked for, to believe what God has already said. The Bible tells us that God's word is true. Psalm 33, for the, Lord, for the word of the Lord holds true. We can trust everything he does. The Bible tells us God's word is flawless. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is flawless. There is no, there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfect. The Bible tells us that God's word never fails. Isaiah 55 says, so is my word that goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it, says the Lord. The Bible tells us that God's word never fails. I love this. One of my favorite verses in the world, Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You see, in Abraham's mind, there was a word that was standing forever, and that was this. I will give you a son. I will make you a great nation. Abraham took that word to the bank, even in the midst of his most daunting, challenging, difficult season of his life. What word has God already spoken that he is saying that has got to trump how you feel right now? Put on the lens of faith. God wants you to move your vision from fear to faith. Let's keep going. I'm going to wrap up. Here it is. So it tells us they arrived at the place where God had told him to go. And Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I cannot imagine. Anybody who's a parent, I can't imagine what that would feel like. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. He was going to go through with it. 
And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You, you, you have revealed who you really are and what you really think. It's been uncovered. You have not withheld from me your son, even your only son. Then Abraham looked up. He looked up and he, what did he, what did he do? He saw, he saw something new. This is a new lens. He saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yerah, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. See, there's a new lens that just emerged right here. And this is, I, loved, I love that this is, the, this is the climactic point of the whole story of Abraham. I'm gonna look at the end of his life next week, but this is the big reveal. This is the big aha moment. God has been leading Abraham to this moment to reveal something to Abraham. Now, when, when, you, when you hear that story, does something in you, let's just be honest in church, I promise you're not gonna get struck down. But when you hear this, like God come and ask a father to kill, to murder his son, does that not like grind something in you? I'll, I'll lead the way. I struggle with this story. Yeah? Yeah, like that's, that's not just weird, that's harsh. And so we struggle to understand it, but you, you have to understand something about the context that Abraham was in. Abraham lived in ancient Mesopotamia in the ancient Near East. And they had, there were many religions at the time. And, and in those religions, there was one main big idea. And that is this, that how we interact with God, that based on the things that I do, God will in turn react. And so in the ancient Near East, there were all kinds of versions of God, ideas about what God is like. There was Baal, the thunder God, the God of fertility. There was all types of deities in the region at the time. And people had developed this way to see their lives through the lens of who their God was. And so there was this thing called sacrifices. And what were sacrifices? Sacrifices were a way to earn the favor of the deity. Last fall, we had a great Harvest, and I gave a good sacrifice. So maybe this, this year, if I give another good sacrifice, the gods will shine their favor on me and they'll give me a good harvest. Or maybe you're going, maybe this other person in ancient, in ancient Near East in Abraham's village or something was going through a difficult season with their family. So they gave an extra big sacrifice because they were going through an extra hard time and trying to get the favor of the gods to shine upon them. And so there was this idea, this system that was built. And this is what is religion. Religion is this idea that if I do something, if I move in a certain way, then the gods will move in a certain way to me. If I give a good sacrifice, then maybe the gods will shine their favor on me and they'll grow my crop or they'll heal my son or they'll fix my problems or they'll give me financial favor. If I do this, then God will do that. That's the heart of religion. And at Abraham's time, religion was rampant. I want to suggest to you religion is still rampant. But in Abraham's time, people were very convinced about the gods and very 
dialed in to how much the gods would demand. And so at the time of Abraham, child sacrifice was a thing. Because what are the, what's going to happen? If last year you gave your best cattle and your best stuff and God gave you a, a, a mediocre crop, then what are you going to do next year? You're going to have to give something better to get what? A better crop. And so by the time of Abraham, sacrifices had escalated to a point where you're giving your most precious stuff, even your kids. And so child sacrifice was a thing at the time. And so when, when Abraham hears this call, on the one hand, the Bible wants you to hear the, the love in his heart where God says, your son, your only son whom you love so much. But you have to also understand the context that in Abraham's world, it's not a weird thing that the gods are asking for me to sacrifice my child. All the gods in this region do. That God calls for child sacrifice. That God calls for child sacrifice. Okay, maybe this God's like that too. And then Abraham gets up on the altar. He's obedient, God-fearing, trusts in God, knows that what God said, God will raise him from the dead. Even if I, ha even if I have to do this, God, God will, will be good. He lays him down, and then what? God stops him, and God wants to tell him something about himself. God said, don't lay a hand on the boy. I'm the God who provides the sacrifice. I'm not the God who demands the sacrifice so that I'll be good to you. I'm the God who is already good to you and I will provide the sacrifice on your behalf. You've got to understand how revolutionary this story was when it first started to emerge. For the first time ever, here you have the deity, the God of this story, our God, saying, you can't buy my affection." You already have it. It's so revolutionary. It's so fundamental. So you have to see this, this lens that Abraham saw everything through. And this is it. If you're writing notes down, I want you to write this. Abraham came to see God through the lens of Father. He learned that God is good that I don't have to stack good behavior, large sacrifices. I don't have to do all the stuff to make God act favorably toward me. God wants you to understand, no, I'm the God who provides the sacrifice. On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. I'm the God that is already for you. And that if I am for you, who can be against you? Yeah, I know there are things in your life going on that, that you can't control. And you're trying to understand. You need to trust me. You need to just, you know, be obedient and, and, and trust me. But you have to know the filter by which God wants you to see everything is this, that God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. God is good all the time. Okay, I know, my, I, know, I know my financial situation, but God is good all the time. He wants to end religion. Do you know that? Like, you might, like, I, I talk to people all the time. They say, I'm a pastor, and they say, I'm, well, I'm not religious. And I'll fire back at them and say, me neither. At least I'm trying not to be, because that's a good way to die. That's a good way to have a horrible life where you never know where you stand with God. You see, God becomes the God who provides the sacrifice. I, this hit home to me this, about two weeks ago. Um, I was with my youngest son. I have three kids, Ava, who's nine, Aiden, who's seven, and Alexander, who's two. And I was putting Alex to bed, and I, I was holding him, and we were reading. Um, it was sort of screen time, but 
we were kind of reading. Uh, don't judge me. And we, we had uh, the YouVersion Kids Bible app. If you don't have that, you should get that for your kids because it has like an illustrative form, uh, like the stories of the Bible. And so I have my phone there and my, my, my boy's got a sippy cup and I'm holding my phone in front of him. He's sitting on my chest and, and I'm like, what story do you want to read, bud? And he presses the icon where there's this altar. And so, of course, it opens up and it's the story of Abraham and Isaac. And so I'm jumping, so don't cry again. I'm holding my boy and uh, the story starts rolling through. And it's this cartoon, it's so innocent, it's this cartoon, but it was hitting me. Like, here's this dad with his boy. And I'm holding my son. I have a picture of him, you already see him. I'm holding my son and uh, I say, hey, man, how do you, come on. I'm holding him, and I just had this conversation with God. I said, God, I don't think I could give him to you. Like, I'd die for him. I'd go to hell for him. There's nothing I wouldn't do for him. Like, I I don't think I could do it. You got to understand, like, I, I grew up in a tradition. I, I've heard sermons about, would you lay down your Isaac? Would you take the most precious thing? Is God worthy enough in your life to lay it down? And and there's truth about sacrifice, and I'm all for sacrifice. I think you should be tithing 10%, just for the record. I'm all for sacrifice. But there is a fundamental thing buried beneath sacrifice called religion. And what it is, is it's trying to get God on your side. And so I had this this dialogue in this moment where God got to expose something in me. And I said to God, I don't think I could lay him down. And the Lord just spoke back and said, is that who you think I am? Is that what you think I'm like? Do you think I'm the God who demands that you sacrifice your son? Or do you know that I'm the God who gave you mine so that you wouldn't have to? And that's the fundamental message of Jesus. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, for God so loved the world, the world that you love, the world that he loved so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his son who he loved so much. Like put this lens on about you, about how God sees you. For God so loved you, you in all your brokenness and dysfunction. I, I, I'll just be honest here. Isn't there a part of you deep down that is, isn't convinced that God quite likes you? Like there is a space in my soul somewhere that tries to keep telling me God's not happy with you. God knows the real you. You better be a good boy. You better do good Christian things. You better put it on. You better get him happy with you. The gospel is a new lens. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son to condemn the world but to save the world through him. You see, this story of Abraham and Isaac is a story about another story. It's a story about a God who gave his son for the redemption of us all, who carried a wooden cross up a hill and who had to go through with it. And he died a sinner's death so that you and I might be called sons and daughters of God. God wants you to hear this today. And the spirit of God is right now working in your heart to reveal something. 
God is good and you are loved by him. You don't have to do anything to convince him. That's the thing about if you have a kid, like I, I'm like my boy, I think that's why I struggled with it. There is, he offers me nothing. He's two, he poops his pants. He, he, <laughs> he offers me nothing and yet I will do everything for him. Why? He's my child and I'm a mediocre father. God is a perfect father. And so God wants you to put this lens on right now for your whole life and that you would just have vision, cross vision. You would just see everything through the lens of the cross. What is God like? Look at the cross. How do I understand my life? Look at the cross. I don't know all the details. All I know is God loves me and, and God is my father and I am loved by him. And that if God is for me, then who can be against me? If he who did not spare his own son will not, how will he not graciously give us all things? If God is for me, who can be against me? That's the lens by which God wants you to see everything. He wants you to see your sin through that lens, to know that you can't outsin him. Do you know with my kids, all three of them, there's nothing they could do that would make me not want to be their father? Nothing. I will always love them. Always. Put that lens on. The creator of the universe wants you to see him as father. No religion. Relate to him. Jesus when he was baptized, he came up and the Bible says that the heavens opened and God said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. At that point in Jesus' story, he hadn't even done anything yet. That was like the first stop on his ministry. Why was God pleased with him? Because he's the son. And the Bible says the spirit of God came down upon him and when you put your faith in Jesus, you enter into that space where God looks at you. He no longer sees what you did, what you did or didn't do, what you're going to do. He sees you as, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit of God is trying to testify in your heart to give you that spirit that says, dad, father, stand with me. I want to pray with you today. And I'm just asking the Lord that, and this is something that the Spirit has to reveal. I can show you in the Bible why God wants you to see him as father and how to put that lens on. But at the end of the day, it's got to be something that God reveals to your spirit. And so my prayer is as we pray and as we sing and just take a moment that the Spirit of God, even in this moment, as we just make these confessions before him, that the Spirit of God would convince you, would bear witness to the fact that you are loved by the most power, the greatest power in all of creation. You are loved by the creator himself. And this isn't an impersonal love. This is the most personal love you can ever imagine. You are loved by God and there is nothing you can do that would ever change that. Let me pray. Father, thank you today. Thank you that we can call you Father. Jesus, thank you that when you taught us to pray, you said when you come to God, first say our Father, that we would relate to you, God, and it defies logic. But Lord, we just say thank you today. Thank you for paying the sacrifice. Thank you for being that father that actually went through with it, that sacrificed his son so that all of us might be made right with you, so that all of us might be called sons and daughters of God, that you paid the price with the blood of your own son, that we would be adopted as sons and daughters. So Father, I pray that the revelation of sonship 
would rest to new depths in our hearts, that we would leave this place having the, the mind of Christ and eyes that see what you see, that we would see you through the lens of the cross to realize that we are loved, that our debt has been paid, our life has been purchased, that, that we have rights of sons and daughters, that we would see our circumstances through your power and your might and your faithfulness and your goodness, and that, God, we wouldn't try to make you subject to our circumstances. We would try to make our circumstances subject to your goodness, greatness, and mercy. And we love that we get to do that. So, Father, even as we sing today, or for the one that's online, Lord, I just pray, Holy Spirit, would you bear witness in our hearts that no matter what we're going through right now, we would realize that at the, at the end of the day, we are loved by God, and that you are a perfect Father, and you're leading us perfectly. And so we thank you for that today. Lord, let your love, let your mercy, let your kindness, let your goodness, let your power, let your healing, let your truth wash over us fresh today. Fix our focus. Set our minds on Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.